But be humble during this time. Most of you know that we're working through a serious illness at home with grace. So it's been three months since I've served you in this way. I feel weak, and I also feel excited, and I think Easter Sunday is a good day to lean into this. So give me grace and bear with me in this, but let's do some work from the Word together. Every pastor longs in their heart for the people that the Spirit has given to his church to know down in the marrow of their bones, the love of God for them in Christ. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus' apostle Paul wrote to them and he said, hey, I'm praying for you. And then he said it like this, that you would know the love of Christ. Now on Easter weekend, usually we really press on the love of Christ that was displayed on the Friday night. That was the night that Jesus died. Awfully, shamefully, painfully, sacrificially, in our place for our sins, that we might be fully and finally free and forgiven forever. That's gospel alliteration right in there. And normally we press the love of Christ for us on the cross on Friday night. But that is the, not the only night where the love of God for you was put on full display. And my aim this morning is to press into your soul to see the love of God for you in Christ that was put on display on the Sunday night when Jesus began to appear to his disciples. Here's our big idea for today. In love, Jesus made sure that his disciples knew for sure that he was really alive again. My job is to press that in your mind and your heart and help you feel the implications of this beautiful truth. All right, before I start, one thing to make clear. In Bostonian culture, there's two major objections that get raised to the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. One of those is the modernity way of objecting. We go like this, hey, resurrection from the dead is not physically possible. It couldn't have happened. I went to the Museum of Science growing up, and I know that we live in a closed naturalistic system. And so whatever other explanations you have for this whole Easter thing, it can't be that Jesus really rose from the dead. That's a modernity way of thinking. If those are the waters that you swim in, we love you. I just hope that your time with us today will be helpful to see one type of evidence, eyewitness testimony that the scriptures give. But then there's this whole second way of objecting to the doctrine. It's the post-modernity way. And we say, hey, look, Cruz, I really don't care about arguments or evidences or proofs for the resurrection of Jesus. I don't care what Lee Strobel 
and Chuck Colson and John Calvin and your Bible says, I'm not a Christian. All this Jesus stuff that you guys are into does not intersect with my life. So you can believe whatever you want in your weird seven-mile road thing. Your truth is your truth, but my truth is my truth, and Jesus just doesn't come into my truth. So the question for you is not, hey, did Jesus really rise or not, but do I care or not? If that's where you swim, we just want to encourage you that you should care, because if this gospel claim is true, it's the greatest news ever, hands down, no contest. And if this gospel claim is true, you will have to reckon with its truth. And we'd love for you to do that now and for the rest of this earthly life then later. All right, let me pray for us and we'll press into these words. Father, be good to us. We know that we can hear a million gospel words and they'll just stop right here in our ears. But if the grace of the Spirit would visit this room and my friends who are here, something beautiful and eternal could happen. So I just, with faith, ask that you would do that work and that your word that is alive would be alive in us. Hear my prayer and answer, I pray. Amen. All right, before we hit the words, I got to give you the backstory so you know how we got to these words. Let's do this. 2,000 years ago, out of seemingly nowhere, out of nowhere, this Jewish guy showed up in the Roman Empire, in the region called Palestine, just north of the city of Jerusalem, kind of like Wakefield to Boston. Nobody had ever seen anything like this guy. Nobody. Captivating preaching with authority, working crazy miracles, exercising spirits, healing sick people unmistakably, and he just had this crazy way about him. He was fearless, but he was tender. He was a great talker, but he was a great listener. When, when do we see those two things merged? He has long-range focus on the task before him, but he was never above connecting personally with whoever it was that was arm's distance to him. He had rock star popularity, but he was humble and approachable. Nobody knew what to do with this Jesus. Naturally, a whole crew of men and women dropped everything that they were doing with their life, and they started to follow him. And after being with him for a few years, they began to surmise, and some of them even like quietly believe, I think this might be the Christ. Do you think this might be the Christ? At the very end of his life, he began to say, yes, that's who I am, and I am going to suffer and die and rise on the third day. And nobody had a clue what he was talking about when he said this stuff. What does that even mean? Then the worst thing ever happened. Tensions with the religious authorities escalated, and Jesus was arrested and falsely tried and beaten and convicted and crucified and dead and buried, they saw his dead body get wrapped in cloths and put in the ground. They saw it. For two nights, Friday night and Saturday night, everyone was devastated. 
Then the first thing on the third day, the women among those disciples grabbed their spices and they went to the tomb just as the sun rose, the Sabbath was over, and they were intending to anoint his body and just see him and love him dead one more time. When they got there to the tomb, it was empty. What did none of those women think had happened? That he was alive. They were not stupid. They knew that they had seen him die, and they saw him get buried, and they knew that dead people don't rise from the dead. So they assumed that somebody jacked with the body. Somebody stole the body. Maybe we're at the wrong tomb. Where is the dead body of Jesus? So important that you feel this. Nobody was expecting Jesus to be alive. Nobody. But then he began to appear. First to Mary and these women, then to Peter, then to two disciples on the seven-mile road, holler, And then we get to our text. And all the other disciples are huddled up in a room and the blinds are shut and the door is double locked and there's a chair against the handle because they're scared of what's going to happen next. They're still grieving, but they're also buzzing about these weird reports that people have seen and talked with Jesus alive. At this point, they're a total mess Tracy would say, a hot mess. That's this room. Nobody knows what's going on. Do you feel that? Okay, that's where our text opens. And I just want you to walk it with me and feel the love of Christ for his disciples in the way that he moves toward them and makes sure that they know that he is risen. All right, five different ways. We'll throw them up on the screen with the texts. They're not all of the same import, but I'm trying to bowl you over with the love of Christ. All right, number one, he can't wait for Galilee. Here's the first thing that I read. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Okay, where did this happen? Answer, in the city of Jerusalem. They are still in the city. This is Sunday night. Now, this is really weird because what did he tell the women when he saw them at the tomb site in the garden? He said, go tell the disciples that I'm risen, and I'm going to meet them in Galilee, where they did their thing together for three years, wicked north of the city. What is Jesus doing in Jerusalem? He couldn't wait to see them. He couldn't wait for them to see him. It was so important to him that they not be left in this distraught, confused, scared mess of suspense about what was really going on. He didn't want them to endure a third straight sleepless night. And so he went that night to be with them even if it was just for one conversation. When I was Claire's age, 10, 11, 9, we had a family reunion, right? And everybody was supposed to meet down in the hotel lobby at like 7 p.m. 
Well, we got there at like four, and we loved our cousins so much and our aunts and uncles so much, and we couldn't wait to see them that, do you know what James and I did? We, I was a talker even when I was a kid. We went over to the desk and we said, hey, these names, what rooms are these people in? And then we got on the elevators and we went up to the rooms three hours before the actual reunion. Why? We wanted to see them so bad. We loved them. We, we couldn't wait three more hours. That's the spirit of Jesus right here. Beautiful commentator. Jesus had promised that after his resurrection, he would see them in Galilee. But so desirous was he to see them and satisfy them that he anticipated that appointment and he sees them in Jerusalem. Do you feel that love? All right, next thing, number two. He came real close. As they were talking, Jesus stood among them. He did not call out to them through the wall, hello, it's me. He did not deal with them like a distant deity. He did not appear up on top of the temple so that they would be like, wait, is that really him? He was not there to show off his grandeur. If iPhones existed, he would not have FaceTimed them from Cafe Nero. He would not have Facebook lived his appearance on a screen. He was not toying with their faith. He wasn't messing with them. He wasn't showing off his superiority. He wanted them to be sure, so he came close. This was always the way with Christ, right? The Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was not a man in the high castle. Jesus did not do like Manny Ramirez did when he lived among us. Where did he live? Top floor corner suite of the Ritz-Carlton with a private elevator. That's not how Jesus did it with us. He walked and he lived and he slept among his disciples. At the Last Supper, he is so close to them that John literally leans on his chest during the meal and on this night so that his identity would be unmistakable, unmistakable. He stood right there among them. Do you feel that love? Next one, he greets them warmly. And he said to them, peace, peace to you. Is anybody else surprised by this? What was Jesus' last moments with his disciples? What did that look like? All he saw was the back of their fitted caps, right, when they were running away in the garden. They scattered from him. No one stood beside him during his trial. Peter even denied he knew him. Is nobody else expecting Jesus to stand among them and then go all Kylo Ren or Michael Corleone or Jon Snow, just hang everybody? How does Jesus come to them? He comes warm and open in peace. Thus, Christ would, at the first word, intimate to them that he did not come to quarrel with Peter for denying him. 
And he did not come to quarrel with the rest for running away. No. He came peaceably to show that he had forgiven them and was reconciled to them by the cross. Isn't that beautiful? Do you feel the love? Yeah. On the Sunday night? All right, next one. He lets them touch him. They were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Last week, when it was my last leave from pastoral duties, uh, I had three months of that. And so I said, who wants to go do something? And Callie was willing to jump in the car with me and go down to New York City. We saw some old friends and family. We went to a Yankees game. You can keep that stadium. No, thank you. Fenway Park is like infinitely better than that big dump. Um, One of the things that we did was we went to my childhood home. I lived as a little guy in uh, Staten Island, New York. And so we drove over to the house. It was a beautiful afternoon. We parked across the street, and then I said, Callie, that's the house that I was born in and lived in when I was real little, even younger than you. And this is so cool because on the stoop of the house next door to it, at that very moment, was the same family that was there 40 years ago, Ken and Ann Morris. They're literally standing out in front of their house saying goodbye to their daughter, Kirsten, who, who was a baby when I lived there and was there to visit. And so I get out of the car and I stand up like this and I'm pointing and I wave and Anne looks at me like I was a ghost. She does this, she does that. Who is the last person that she was ever imagining would pull up across the street from her house on a random Saturday afternoon in 2019? It's Matthew Cruz. She had not seen me since I was, you know, Wesley's age. And I mean, he's handsome today, but he's going to be big and handsome one day. And so you know what she said? She went, Matthew? She called to me across the street. And so what did I do? I crossed the street, and I went over, and I gave her one of those side hugs, and I took her hand, and I put it on my face, and I said, yeah, it's me. I didn't used to be this ugly, but you've got to believe me. It's, it's me. And I convinced her through that nearness and that touch. That is what is happening in this story right here. They see Jesus and they think, it must be a spirit or a ghost. Or maybe this is a get-out deal where it's somebody else's body and it's his brain and I'm going to check for the stitches over here, but this cannot be Jesus. And so what does he say? Touch me. Handle me. Take all the time that you need. One by one by one, the men and the women come over to Jesus and they touch and they pat. And they handle. Do you feel the love of Christ? Do you feel the humility of Christ? When I was 20, I went on a missions trip to Mexico. And we stayed in the city of Juarez. But for one of the days, we drove an hour and a half into the country. We went down this valley. 
and we got to this slum. It's the kind of place that you're born in and you're dying and you never get out of. And we want to preach the good news of the grace of the gospel to these families and these kids. Many of these little children had never seen a white person before. And you know, I'm, I'm six, three and a half. Many of them had never seen anybody above like five, eight. So this was weird. You know what they wanted to do? Do you know? They wanted to touch me. Like just to make sure that I was real. I was there because I love those image bearers. And so what did I let them do for like an hour? This whole little village of kids were just touching me. All these hands. You germaphobes that are freaked out. All these kids in this slum just touching me, touching me. Why did I let them do it? I was there for them out of love. Do you feel the love of Christ for these people? And don't miss this in the text. Not just a body, but his body. It wasn't enough for them to just know on this night that somebody that looked a lot like Jesus was standing among them. They needed to know that it actually was Jesus. How did he ensure that? He kept his wounds. Hear these words, beautiful commentary. As to the wounds... They show that Christ rose for us rather than for himself. Since after he vanquished death and obtained a blessing and heavenly immortality, yet on our account, he continued for a time to bear some remaining marks of the cross. This was an astonishing act of love toward the disciples that he preferred lacking something that would have rendered perfect the glory of the resurrection than to deprive them of such a support for their faith. In other words, why the ugly, brutal scars healed up but still visible in his body? It's not because he couldn't make them go away. This is his glorified body. It's because in love, Jesus knew that the wounds would help them to believe. Let's say that you weren't sure that this was really me, right? Just somebody that looks a lot like Matt Cruz and sounds like him too. Wow, this is crazy doppelganger stuff right now. But you weren't sure that there wasn't an imposter that I was like in my place and I was home with grace right now. How would I prove it to you? I also already proved it by wearing the baggiest Easter outfit ever, right? <laughs> is that how you know it was made for sure? Because no doppelganger is going to put on that baggy shirt. Would it be the Chris Stapleton tattoo that I have on my back? No. Who believes that I have a Chris Stapleton tattoo on my back? <laughs> Nobody. You know what I would do if I wanted to prove it to you? I would come over and I would bend my head and I would say, right there. Go ahead, touch it. That's the scar from when the doctor cut a hole in my head to remove melanoma from my head. And there's no fake in that scar. Then you would go, oh, shoot, Cruz, it's really you. The love of Christ moved him to maintain those scars so that they would know that they 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 know that, they know that this isn't a joke. 
He's risen. All right, last one. He eats a meal. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, does anyone have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. Don't miss the words disbelieved for joy. Disbelieved for joy. So they're beginning to believe. But you know, they're in this place here where they're like, this is too good to be true. This can't be right. But they're smiling in their disbelief. You know that feeling? So um, I work a day job, and there's a bunch of wonderful women that I work with. And I think I've told you this before, but every time the lottery crests over $100 million, they bully me into giving them $2 so that all of us get tickets just in case we can all win the lottery. So, you know, I talked to human resources about it, and they said, grow up. It's a safe work environment. And I just give them my $2. Let's say that we won. And I know winning the lottery has its own problems, but let's say that we won and it was a good thing. And, you know, like Karen would text me like two minutes later, right? She's watching the balls actually drop. We won, we won, we won. Everybody's meeting at work in, in a half hour, and we're going to, like, clear all our stuff on the desks because we're not coming back. You can figure it out. And let's say I ran over with them. What's the first thing that I would do? I would say, time out, everybody. Calm down, you hysterical women. Somebody show me the ticket. I want to see the ticket. And I told them, like, if it's my six numbers, I'm taking half the pot, and you can all get the rest. So I want to see if it's my six numbers. If I look at the ticket, and then I look at, like, what is it, the Boston Herald, where they have the, the numbers, if I look at those together, then I'll know that I know that I know, because this is too good to be true right now. That's their feeling at the end of this conversation. And so Jesus gives them one more proof. What is it? Does anyone have anything to eat? Can someone give me some fish? Turner's take out, and I will eat this before you. So this is a biological witness. His ability to digest food would show them that there's a real body thing going on here. Here we perceive how kindly and gently Christ bears with the weakness of his followers that he does not fail to give them a new support when they are falling, although he has obtained a new and heavenly life and he has no more need of meat or drink than angels have, still he voluntarily condescends to join in the common usage of mortals. During the whole course of his life, he had subjected himself to the necessity of eating and drinking, and now, though relieved from that necessity, he eats for the purpose of convincing his disciples of the certainty of his resurrection. Here we see again how he disregarded himself and chose always to be devoted to our interests. That's old theologian talk for Jesus didn't need to eat, but he knew it would strengthen their faith, and so he ate. But this is not just biological witness. This is much more than that. It is theological witness. Why is he asking for food? Because eating is something that people do when they rise from the dead. 
This is how breakfast works, right? You wake up in the morning, and what do you need? You've just woken up from being unconscious for hours and hours and hours. You need a TB12 smoothie or some electrolyte water or a stack of pancakes with butter in between each of them, however you do it. After the night comes breakfast. What did Jesus say to the parents of the 12-year-old who he raised from the dead? What's the first thing he said? Get her something to eat. What did John see in his vision? That's the very first thing we're going to do when we step into the age to come. What's the first thing that we do? We sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we eat. You guys, why do we come down to the table every single Sunday as a part of our worship and eat together? Why do we do it? Because Jesus has brought us back from the dead and we're alive again. So we eat. Why does Jesus say in all his resurrection appearances, let's eat? What does he say by the seashore when they see him? Let's have breakfast. What does he say on the seven-mile road? Holler. Let's break some bread together. And he eats before them, and that's how they know it's him. What does he ask for in this moment? In love. Somebody got some food? I'm alive. I'm alive. Do you feel that love? The guarantee of a perfected world to come in the real body of Jesus. All right, let me land the plane with this. I want to move from the text to your life right now in real time. Please don't miss this last thought. Christ's love for them that I just tried to unpack for you was love for us. His making sure that they knew ASAP as surely as possible was not just for them, but it was for you and for me. Remember that it was not the Father's intentional design that everyone would see Christ risen in the flesh. That's not how he was going to do this. Not even in that day. Christ was going to appear unmistakably, unmistakably, repeatedly, with many proofs, Luke says it, to a small group of people whose job it was to witness with their changed life and with their written words to the truth of the real resurrection of Jesus so that everyone else who sees those lives and reads those words would know that they know that they know that they know. I know this is too good to be true, but Christ is risen. Jesus is not risen in our hearts. Jesus is not risen like spring follows winter. Jesus is not risen in a religious, mystical sense. Jesus is not risen for Christians, but not for everybody else. Jesus is risen for real, for real. This is why we get dressed up and amped up on Easter Sunday morning. Our future is so bright, it will bust your Ray-Bans bright. That's how bright it is. Christ conquered sin and death and hell. He went to the cross and through the cross 
to the grave and through the grave into new, eternal, unkillable life. He lives. And as surely as he lives, we can live as well. It's not too good to be true. It's true. We're going to pause. I have no idea where you're at in this Jesus journey, but I want you to receive these words as love for you, that you might know that you know that you know that your faith is not hinging on some ridiculous myth, but that God took on flesh. He died in our place for our sins, and he straight up rose the beginning of a new creation that we will enjoy forever. Would you just pause for a few moments and reflect on that with me? Spirit, we ask for grace today that your power would be known in our lives and that with the way that we live and the way that we speak, others would come to see. I think this Christ may actually be risen. Thank you for the clear testimony that you've given us in your word. And at, at least let this be a place that revels rightly in something that's too good to be true but is actually true. Hear my prayer for that and answer. I pray that you would do it. Amen. All right.